Good morning. Uh, I, I'm human. Um, I, I'm human just like you all, and there are many, many Sundays when the bulletin tells me it's time for the sermon, and I'm just sad uh, because I'd like to just keep singing. And uh, the bad news for you all today is that's really where my heart is right now, and I'm the guy that's supposed to give the sermon. Uh, just joking. That was a great job by the worship team. Uh, did you notice how Jeff kept preaching during the prayers and announcements? He's been away for a long time. And honestly, he's just trying to get something good in today in case I blow it. Uh, so he's just trying to love you guys, and I appreciate that as well. Uh, I'm Ted Sin, and um, I'm the interim young adult pastor here at Orangewood, and I'm uh, the church planting intern. And hopefully around the turn of the year, uh, we will begin the work of gathering a team and planting a church downtown. And so uh, it's my honor and privilege uh, to get to be with you today. I want to get to... Um, an aspect of Christ's character and a part of His beauty that I've been meditating on a lot recently, but I'm going to get there through a somewhat comparative and circuitous or roundabout route. And so I just want to get us going, uh, knowing where I'm headed and where I want to get to and where I want to take you. Uh, I'm going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning, uh, towards the end, and a few verses in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 4. And five, it is in your bulletin, um, in the insert. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. Let me read the passage and then I'll pray for us. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me pray. Jesus, we long to see you more clearly. We want to fall more deeply in love with you. We want to believe in you more and more today. It is our desire to display you more and more clearly and more and more powerfully. I pray that you would come And teach us from your word today and from your life today. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me give you the context of our verses. I sort of jumped around a bit. And let me kind of situate you in the book of Ephesians. As many of you know, the book has about six chapters or does have six chapters. And chapters 1 through 3 are generally about the grace of God and this glorious gospel that is ours. That for people who could do absolutely nothing to be saved, we hear about Jesus the Son of the Father, and through the Spirit, who has done everything to save a lot like us. Spectacular news. In chapter 4, Paul sort of turns the corner, as you know, and he begins to say what this new life looks like now that Jesus is beginning to work on us and save us and transform us and prepare us for eternity with Him in heaven. And so in chapter 4, more specifically, before these verses, Paul is making this argument about put off the old man or the old self or the old way of living before you came into contact with this gracious God. And put on the new man, put on the new life 
put on this new freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus. Even more specifically, in the passage that I read today from 25 to 32, there's this rhythmic ping-pong match going back and forth where Paul is saying, do this, what people of the new nature do, and don't do this, what people of the flesh tend to do. And since we're mixed bags, that is to say we're still sinners saved by grace that God's transforming, He's having to let us know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Don't lie. Do tell the truth. Don't steal. But do work hard and try and make as much money as you can and be as generous as you can with what you have left over. Don't use your words to tear and to rupture, but use your words to build up and encourage. And separated by six verses, there is an apparent contradiction in our text that I'm trying to draw out by just reading the two verses. One thing to do, be angry. Now, if you've been a believer for a long time, if you're an unbeliever, not sure what you think about Jesus, and you're trying to figure this out, I'm so glad you're here. This is the best place for you to be. But if you're a believer, my guess is that you, like me, we have sort of created this trap door for this verse of be angry and don't sin, and we've just sort of mistranslated it and misapplied it to our lives. And I want to discover that later. I want to let you know I don't think this is a test. I don't think Paul is saying, hey, if you're around people and circumstances that really bother you, try not to get angry. He's positively, proactively commanding anger. Be angry, verse 26. Don't be angry, verse 31. And so you might be thinking, I'm in trouble. My Bible is in contradiction with itself. My God who speaks these very words has contradicted himself in six verses. I'm done. Or we can approach this passage like we do so many other venues in life where circumstances and motivations determine what's loving and what's not loving. Think about it this way, whether it be weeping or laughing. Certain circumstances and certain motivations would cause uh, weeping to be a sin. And other times, weeping is very beautiful, very loving. Think about working out. In, in, in um, me and my brother, let's say, my brother is a fitness freak, very cut, very handsome, um, very much wearing tight clothes. He works out so that you will like his body, so that you will think he's done a phenomenal job handling the temple of God that God has given him. For him to work out, it might actually be sinful. For me to work out, it would actually be righteousness, since I'm lazy, slothful, I've already got a beautiful wife, what's the point? You see that? Um, parents, I didn't know the first and second graders would be in here. I'll try and be careful multiple times in this sermon. But physical intimacy. Certain circumstances and motivations make it very loving, very beautiful, very life-giving. Other circumstances and motivations make it just deadly. Same with anger. Same with anger. So that, that may help us a little bit to be okay with the fact that Paul commands anger, and then he commands us to put away all anger in the same passage. But this is why in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul knows that we will struggle with this. He says this. Be, he says, therefore, tying it to the previous passage, be imitators of God as beloved children. More specifically, not just the character of God revealed in nature in the Old Testament. He says specifically in verse 2, walk in the manner of love as Christ did. As Christ's life is so beautifully portrayed for us from four perspectives in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. 
And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go and look at the beautiful life of Christ and try and understand this apparent paradox. But in some circumstances, anger is sinful, disobedient, and wrong. In some circumstances, anger is loving, obedient, and right. Said conversely, in the circumstances where anger is sinful, a lack of anger is righteous, loving, good, moral. Also, in those circumstances where anger is loving, not being angry is sinful. I want to look at all of that in the life of Christ. But before we get there, I want to very quickly look at our anger, which tends to be very destructive, very disruptive. Uh, it creates lots of brokenness. And I want to set categories out for us so that when we look at the love of Christ and the anger of Christ, we can see its beauty, its redemption. Four categories, as I have thought about my life of anger. The context. Most times when I get angry, let's say 99.9% of the time, it's because my divinity is challenged. Normally, something happens to me and it causes me to get angry, or something that I want to happen is stopped. You know, God doesn't have children who make messes, right? And, and God, He doesn't have trouble selling a house in Lakeland, right? And God, He, he doesn't have trouble getting a home built in Orlando, right? And, and God, He has roommates that clean up after themselves and put their dishes away right away. And, you know, in God, He always has enough money to pay off all His debts and purchase every desire. And God's spouse always does what He wants right away, You see, if you think you're God, which is the principal sin laid out in Scripture, you think you are the center of the universe and everything revolves around you. And so my anger comes out when my divinity is challenged. If God wants the parking spot, He gets it. If He wants the iPhone, He gets it. If He wants the job, He gets it. If He wants the significant other, He gets it. And so I use my anger to let everyone know that God is not being treated as if He ought to be. Now, context. My divinity is challenged. Beneficiary, me. I always benefit from my anger. Recipient, that is the person at whom my anger is directed. The recipient is usually objects, golf clubs, tables, doors, walls. Or, and tearfully so, people who I perceive to be weaker than me. And if I think my anger will control them and get the behavior I want, I will use it on them. And the result, as I've already alluded to, is just plain brokenness. I'll give you an illustration. My two and a half year old Braden tends to stutter. And uh, our pediatrician wisely told us, don't make a big deal about it. Just sit there and listen to him. Let let him articulate what he's thinking and feeling. Don't pressure him. That will probably make the stuttering worse. But just be patient with him. And I tended to do pretty well with that until the day I did buy the iPhone, because God gets what he wants. And we were sitting at family worship after dinner, and I knew that if I could just get the kids off playing in their room or in the bathtub or something, I would get to play with my toy, right? And so we're at that part in family worship where we tell God what we're thankful for. 
And Braden's not very spiritual yet. I'll just go ahead and clue you into that. He's thanking God for Dora and Blue's Clues. And uh, he's very, very thankful for the swimming pool and these other things that God the Father's probably very happy to hear him talk about. I'm, of course, thankful for missionaries and stuff. <laughs> Braden goes into his thing, 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 thing. Dang. And my nature is exposed and I'm shaking with irritation. The old man is rearing his ugly head. And thank God this time, I didn't say to him, Braden, spit it out. We haven't got all day. Of course, Blue's Clue is great. Woohoo! Unfortunately, I've done that in the past, and I've seen tears well up in my kids' eyes, and I've seen their lips quiver, and I've seen them back away from the dad that's supposed to protect them and love them. Hey, hey, hey. 14 or 15 times later, thank you for Jesus. It's probably the first time I've ever heard my son utter his name. What a sweet moment in God's grace overcoming my arrogance and my pride and my anger. In a beautiful way. So it's easy for me when I read verse 26 where it tells me to be angry. It's easy for me to say, well, there's no such good thing. And no such thing as really good anger. And he must be doing something here. He, oh, I get it. It's a test, right? You know, when people and circumstances really start to frustrate me, the test is, am I going to hit somebody? Am I going to yell and scream and use curse words? Or, or am I going to be under control? And of course I'm for that. The Bible's for that. The Bible clearly says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I think that's my overreaction to this passage because 99.9% of the time my anger is sinful and selfish. And so I don't know anything else uh, to do for us other than chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Go to Jesus and look at His extraordinary and splendid and ravishing life. And just watch Him use anger in a beautiful and redemptive way. Watch Him use anger in a way that brings shalom and not rupture. So I'm going to read through this quickly. I'm going to use our four categories. Lean in and listen because this might be hard to follow. I want you to pay attention. Episode 1 in Mark 10, we find the disciples keeping children away from Jesus, even rebuking the parents for trying to see Jesus. Jesus gets indignant, annoyed, bothered, irritated, frustrated. The context, listen to this, compare this to my life and yours. The context, the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless are being pushed aside and treated as insignificant. The beneficiary, not Jesus, the beneficiary, children, toddlers, infants, and parents. The recipient of his anger is the disciples who in this story have all of the authority and power. The result, the strong are rebuked, the weak are protected, promoted, and blessed. Moms, employers, moms think about when we're making dinner. And the kids are tugging at our legs. And they want to help us, God forbid. And they want help getting the crayon box opened. Us, by our old sinful nature, full of pride and selfishness, we just absolutely hate irritation. We, or excuse me, we hate interruption. It just, it just rubs us on the insides. And Jesus hates not being interrupted. He loves 
to love. Episode 2, in Mark chapter 3, we find Jesus in the presence of the Pharisees, his political and religious enemies. Also in the synagogue is a man with a withered right hand, a physical deformity. The Pharisees have no compassion for the man, and they even use this man in an attempt to trap Jesus. And Jesus gets angry. Same Greek word is in our passage. He gets angry at them. Context. The physically deformed are being objectified and used as a trap and not dealt with compassionately. Beneficiary. A handicapped man on the fringe of society. Recipient. Pharisees, the political and religious leaders of a nation. Result. The strong are rebuked for lack of compassion. The weak, disabled, and oppressed are healed and befriended. Jesus has another friend that no one else would want to have. Finally, Mark chapter 11, we find our beautiful Savior in one of his more famous contexts, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus expected to find in the temple people from all nations praying to God. He expected to find the poor being able to buy doves at a cheap price so they could make a sacrifice to a merciful and forgiving God. Instead, he found the minorities being treated in a racist manner, and he found the poor being extorted. And Jesus gets physical in his anger. Controlled rage. The context, the racial minorities are being excluded, marginalized, ignored, and Jesus finds the Jewish poor being extorted. Beneficiary, the fringe, the minority, the refugees, the poor, the recipient of the anger, chief priests, leaders of the temple and Passover. The result, the oppressive strong are driven out and the vulnerable weak are brought near, protected, and even, according to Matthew, healed. I hope you see this beauty I hope that you see as Jesus' emotions uh, get involved in his life and, and the core of who he is flashes out. Mine is so often selfishness and willful pride and even fear. But when Jesus experiences emotion, it's all about other people. His life is truly for everyone besides himself. That's glorious. And it's not just beautiful to watch a man this This so others-oriented. It's beautiful because this is something I've caught on to recently. His actions in, in these passages are very heroic. They're very heroic. Let me read how the final two episodes we looked at today ended. Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to utterly destroy him. Mark chapter 11, verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard about the cleansing of the temple and were seeking a way to utterly destroy him. Have you read The Kite Runner? I'm going to try and tell a few parts of the story without giving away too much of the plot. And I I also want to not be too specific. Um, For those of you who have read it, you know it's it's a gut-wrenching story. And and at times I actually had to put the book down for a day or two and get away from it because I was so deeply uh, moved by by this story. And so because of uh, the fact that I don't want to ruin the plot and the variety of ears in the room, I'm going to try and read this. 
This is to illustrate the heroic aspect of Christ's anger. Hassan, one of the characters in the story Kite Runner, has a complex relationship with Amir, the main character of the story. Hassan is technically Amir's servant, but the boys have created a friendship and camaraderie that is later explained and explored. One day, the neighborhood bully, a third character, a thug named Asef, don't think bully, think sick, corrupt sociopath. Asef is picking on Amir, the main character of the story. Hassan, Amir's servant and friend, steps in with a slingshot, promising to shoot for Asef's eye if he does not let Amir go. Asef relents and promises and chooses to fight another day. Later in the book, we enter another scene where Asef has turned his aggression, his oppression, and his wickedness against Hassan, the servant. Hassan is now the newfound target for Asef. By stepping in and fighting for justice in the earlier scene, Hassan created for himself a new enemy that eventually brutalized him instead of Amir. I think that's beautiful uh, and, and very instructive as we think about Jesus and his anger. In this second scene, as Asef is performing unspeakable acts on Hassan, Amir, Hassan's master, peeks around the corner and sees Hassan being exploited, humiliated, and suffering profoundly. Amir's at a crisis. He's at a defining moment in his life. Will he love and enter into the chaos and evil and fight for the protection and defense of the weak? In this case, embodied by Hassan. Or will he return the favor, knowing full well the risk he runs? Will he become angry enough to risk it all, including his life, to save the weak? Or will he go with my mode of operation and run with calloused fear? Or will he go with my mode of operation and hope to live life shut off and closed in and away from those dark places that scare me? Will he respond with flight instead of fight? I'm not going to tell you how the story ends because I don't like it when a plot is ruined for me. But I can tell you in that episode, the decision he makes, the the ramifications of that are played out in the rest of the book. But this is why I know I would run. Let me tell you why. Four years ago, I was tutoring at the Shepherd House in Parker Street in Lakeland, very similar to our Holden Heights or Paramore. And as I was there tutoring, uh, a second grader comes running in with glee and excitement to let everyone know that there was a fight that was about to happen. And let me tell you, in Parker Street, when a fight's about to happen, if it's really a fight um, brought about Well, I won't go into that. A fight about to happen means that someone really strong is sort of playing with someone really weak and they're waiting for the crowd to gather. In this particular case, it was a drug lord who had an addicted, skinny, scrawny guy under his control. And the scrawny guy was dying to not be there. And when I heard that, I retreated into the building as fast as I could under the guise of, I'm going to protect these students. One of my best friends in the whole world, Tim Mitchell, director of Parker Street Ministries, a hero in my life, truly one of my best friends, a man I miss tremendously from Lakeland. Tim Mitchell, five foot eight, a buck and a quarter, 
is running out the door with anger in his eyes and his jaw clenched. And I have witnessed Tim multiple times walk up to oppressive, wicked people. Multiple times I've watched him go up to them and shake their hand because this is his strategy. If I can shake their hand and draw them close when they punch me, there won't be much momentum behind it. Whether it be a drug lord picking on an addicted uh, man or woman, whether it be a businessman and a woman of the night, whether it be a parent and a child. I've seen my friend Tim exhibit the beautiful anger of Christ and run into an oppressive situation to absorb the evil himself and to let the weak go free. I've also seen that same man share the gospel with the men who beat him up. I've also seen that man see those men come to know Christ. Because the justice of God is this, that he's going to run into a situation where there's weakness and oppression and he is going to put himself between the weak and the strong. And not only is he going to protect the weak, he's going to also forgive the strong. You'll never see anything more beautiful than that. Do you realize that as Christ is on the cross, it is these enemies who have put him there? Their plan to utterly destroy him is playing out. And he is saying... Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is what I mean by heroic. I I wish I had so much time to play this out and think about it, but I don't. I want to just make sure you understand if this is the one thing you catch from this sermon, it'll be worth it. That this is a a statement about the life of Christ. That in the presence of evil, he experiences anger. I want to close looking at one last episode in the life of Christ where in the presence of evil, he experiences anger. (laughs) Is it not his time on the cross? Think about this with me. 2 Corinthians 5 says that literally Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, Jesus actually becomes sin. This beautiful one, the booming voice of heaven has said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father is saying, Finally, a human has lived up to the law. Finally, a human has lived for me. Finally, a human has been perfect and beautiful. Finally, a hero has come. And on the cross, he is absorbing the anger of God for you and me. You see, Ephesians 2 says, rightfully so, that according to our flesh, according to our nature, we're children of death. How is it that in Ephesians 5.1 we're called beloved children? Jesus has taken this title of beloved and he has given it to us by dying on the cross for us. He has taken the hot anger of God and he has satisfied it on the cross. And he has said, I have lived a life for them and now I will die for them. How in the world are we called beloved if it's not for Jesus being called sinner? 1 Thessalonians is, is a letter that Paul is writing and he's, he's writing to them and he talks about Jesus and I never realized how beautiful this is until recently where he says Jesus is the one that will deliver you from the anger to come. Talking about the wrath of God. Listen. If you're a believer or an unbeliever, I'm going to recommend that you do something with me. 
I'm going to recommend that you acknowledge the self-filled way that you've lived your life and join me on the side of the repentant who have received grace from this amazing Savior. I'm going to beg you to join me in defining yourself as one in desperate need of God's grace, knowing that at the cross and in this beautiful life of Jesus, you find exactly what you need. If not, you will experience this anger. I beg you to allow Jesus to experience it for you on the cross by defining yourself as a sinner who knows a Savior. Let me pray. Jesus, I I am oppressive in my pride and I'm negligent in my fear and I pray that you would save me. Jesus, you were wounded for my transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. Upon you was the chastisement that brought us peace. By your stripes, we are healed. Like sheep, we have all gone astray. Like sheep, we have all turned to our own way. And the Father has laid on you the iniquity of us all. Lord Jesus, thank you for your beautiful life, your heroic death, your extraordinary grace. I pray that you would change us, that you would save us, that you would make us effective in your kingdom for your glory and for the sake of your people. In your name we pray. Amen.